Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Welcome and thank you for joining us once again. Today, the theme of the podcast is this. Have you ever gone back to the well one too many times? Because to some extent, that's what's happened with this week's episode, which ties into my previous episode. You'll remember that Rick Brown recently joined me, and we went deep into the excellent David Cronenberg, Stephen King adaptation of The Dead Zone. And a lot of you listeners have let me know how much you enjoyed that episode and how much you've been enjoying revisiting the film itself. So first off, I want to thank you for that feedback, because speaking about feedback, you know, you're probably like me. I think about, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but the ones that I do, it's not like I reach out and let the hosts know what I'm thinking all the time about the episodes. I just listen and I enjoy it. And that's the extent of it. I'm not looking for a greater involvement in the life of the podcast than that. Certain things I'll reply to, like I, uh, I really enjoy the Bob Lefsitz podcast, which I have recommended on the pod a couple of other times. If you're in the entertainment industry, he's a very interesting and notable thinker about all kinds of things. And sometimes... I will email reply to one of his newsletters, but only because he invites that. Or, you know, he's talking about Netflix shows, which he has a similar, very fine-tooth comb when it comes to what he will watch on streaming. So sometimes I feel simpatico with that and I want to share something, but, you know, I never hear back. But when I get a direct message or an email to fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, it's so great. It's like, you know, I can always see the number of downloads on a new episode. So I know already that we have what passes for a nice little community of very regular listeners all around the world. And one of the things I want to do going forward is I want to pick some of the countries where I have a couple listeners or a few downloads, and I want to do movies specific to that country to reward those folks for listening in far-flung places like New Zealand or Japan or wherever it may be. But I do have to say, hearing from people is always amazing, and it really frequently helps to point me in new directions. And of course, I do this for myself. I enjoy doing the podcast. I get something out of it by making this. But increasingly, as we have a little community, I'm doing it for you if you're listening. And I have been thinking about that in the context of what I could do to serve you better and your interests better. So I'm always open to your thoughts if you have any, if you don't, if you think my own thoughts lead to a pretty engaging pod and you're good with that, I'm good with that too. Don't need to bring me your problems. I'm also going to do a listener mail episode soon because I've been keeping a track of uh, comments and funny reviews, helpful, unhelpful suggestions, movie recommendations that it would be funny to do on the pod. I want to do all that stuff in one episode and just kind of respond to things that have come in. Anyway, on to the theme today, going to the well one too many times. Now, The Dead Zone was so good, and I was so into that film on so many levels. It's such a moving film, an incredible, nuanced, emotional performance from Christopher Walken. My guest, Rick Brown, brought forth so many great connections and insights, things that I missed. For example, he talked a little bit about there's these recurring scenes of people on the phone with other people, but they're not speaking. The other person doesn't know who's on the other end of the phone and what a trope that is for the film. Like I missed that kind of stuff. So that's the great thing about having a guest like Rick is he picks up on things like that. So I enjoyed the movie so much. I wanted more great 1983 cinema, more great walk-in, more science fiction. Having recently done Star Wars, talked about industrial light and magic and all that stuff. And there it is in one movie. It's sitting right there. It's the Douglas Trumbull film, Brainstorm, also 1983, science fiction, Christopher Walken, starer, directed, as I said, by legendary special effects maestro Douglas Trumbull, Christopher Walken, Natalie Wood, Cliff Robertson, uh, Louise Fletcher, who just passed away. That's kind of the uh, inspiration for this originally was that I had, upon hearing the news of Louise Fletcher passing away, the first thing I thought about, and also the first thing that I always think about when I hear her name, is her performance in Brainstorm, 
which to me, I realized, like, I think of her first before Christopher Walken. And so watching it again a couple of times in preparation for this, it was kind of interesting because I realized, um, as I've been realizing recently, what are the things that connected me to these films in my childhood when I first encountered them? Well, I'm going to have to do math here. But in 1983, I was, let's see, born in 1969. So in 1979, I was 10, 80, 81, 82, 83, 14. Louise Fletcher's character in Brainstorm is Dr. Lillian Reynolds, um, who's a heavy, heavy smoker. Now, at this time in my life, my mom was also a heavy, heavy smoker. And I think that... Louise Fletcher's performance is so good. It's kind of the, it's the emotional center of the movie, really, which is one of the interesting things we'll talk about in relation to it sort of being a Chris Walken vehicle. But really, she's the center, the emotional heart of the film. She's the embodiment of what the film's best intentions towards the technology and the science fiction are. And her death scene is what was so powerful and is still so powerful. Uh, the way it's filmed, her commitment to it. It feels so personal when you see it. And it's because of her commitment as an actor to delivering something that's, if you think about it, one of those incredibly silly things to do, probably on a film set. Okay, action, Louise. Now die. But also die in a cinematic way so that we sort of understand what's going on. It's a very weird thing to do. But she pulls it off. So anyway... I wanted to go and revisit Brainstorm because I just remembered Louise Fletcher so well and had such a warm feeling about her. And that's the role I always associate her with, not Nurse Ratched, although most people will associate her with Nurse Ratched, because this film, I think she's more uh, warm and present and prickly in a good way, but she's not a, a complicated, difficult, evil person like Nurse Ratched is. Maybe I'm selling Nurse Ratched short, but anyway. Brainstorm is a really interesting film. I was thinking about how to describe it. Uh, but let me play you a little bit of the trailer first so you can get a sense. If you haven't seen it, I'll explain a little of this as we go. Suppose it were possible to transfer from one mind to another the experience of another person. Hey, there it is. Any person, any experience. I'm telling you, it works. The test, sound, taste. Everything, smell. everything, 100%. In fact, better. Did you have a breakthrough or not? Yes. I'd like a demonstration. Knock my socks off. About um, military applications. Wide open. Missile guidance, that kind of thing? They're going to be able to plug right into the old noodle. I made that for you. What is it? It's me. <laughs> You've blown communication as we've known it, right out of the water. You know that, don't you? So something happened to me. It was more than just a sexual fantasy. It was a feeling I had. I'm more than I was, Mike. I'm scared. But the thing is, I like it. I want more. No, I can't authorize this. It's a chance to take a scientific look at the scariest thing a person ever has to face. This is not the research we're interested in. This is my project. I don't want to see it end up on some defense scrap heap before we know what it's really about. I want these personal experiments stopped. I told you I want to play it out. Nobody plays that tape. Arrest him. Us. 
Okay, so we're we're hitting a lot of the Douglas Trumbull kind of sweet spots here. If you're a fan of films that he's been involved with, like 2001, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this trailer is in many ways kind of the best embodiment of the film because it's a film that works really best as a three-minute trailer. There are issues once we get into the film itself, and we can unpack a little bit about how and why those occurred. But, man, if you were going to the movies in 1983 and you saw this trailer, it is pretty wow. It's got cool technology. It's got a really cool lab of the sort we haven't really seen before. It's got scientists of a sort we haven't really seen on screen before. Christopher Walken, um, a great James Horner score. One of the truly great things about the film is the James Horner score. And it was Natalie Wood's return to acting after some number of years as a layoff. So it had a lot of things going on with it. And you can understand why it was uh, interesting to the studio because we're in this heyday in 1983, uh, post Close Encounters, post Star Wars, post Empire Strikes Back. All of this kind of science fiction stuff is having a moment and kind of cool films about ideas which are still mass marketed were being made. And we wouldn't see films like this well, I guess, you know, you could say Contact is a film like this with Jodie Foster, which tries to be about some loftier things, but still be a mass entertainment. So, of course, now when you watch this, it feels like something we don't really get anymore. Unless you felt like the Marvel movies were containing lofty science fiction ideas. Just briefly, because I think it's interesting, I don't want to get bogged down in the history of the screenplay, but this was based on an idea or an original screenplay by the writer uh, Bruce Joel Rubin, who I think, did he write uh, one of my favorite movies, which I really want to revisit on the podcast to see if it holds up. He wrote uh, Jacob's Ladder, 1990, which was directed by Adrian Lyne. Tim Robbins, Elizabeth Pena, Danny Aiello. Um, man, I really remember this movie so vividly from 1990. And I would like to see if it holds up. So he wrote that. But before that, he had written a screenplay called The George Dunlap Tape. And it's much different than what we ended up with in Brainstorm because there's a couple of passes and other writers who were brought on. It's a different kind of a film. It's essentially, I believe, told completely in the sort of flashbacks of the tapes that get played. But it has a lot of the, the DNA, if you will, of where we ended up. Uh, but subsequent rewrites, picture being put in turnaround, uh, the screenwriter of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore had been, had been hired to, I guess, humanize it a little bit legendary, controversial uh, studio head David Begelman was into the film. Um, a couple of other writers were attached. And Trumbull hadn't directed a lot of films. I'm not sure if he directed many more than this one and maybe another one or two. But he stopped directing after this because he did not have a great experience. And... Part of that has nothing really to do with the film itself because, as we'll talk about, Natalie Wood died during the making of this film, an event that would really haunt and still haunts the awareness of this film to this day. And the studio troubles and problems that he experienced being the type of guy that he was, I'm not sure that that meddling felt worth it to him. All in all, it just was not a satisfactory experience for him. And ultimately, he decided not to ever try to direct films again. So it went through a whole bunch of different permutations to end up with the screenplay that we have. And interestingly, and I wonder if partly maybe this is a reason why some of the stuff feels muddled. It certainly will feel as you watch it like a mashup of a few different screenplays. 
it to me feels like the work of a director who's pretty good at some very specific things, maybe not so good at some other things, although there's also evidence of moving human moments. And that would be kind of the the hit, I would say, you'd put on Douglas Trumbull is, well, he's a special effects guy. He's at home in the world of technology. But when it comes to real human thoughts and feelings, he doesn't quite have the same sensitive approach to that. Although there are some scenes, which we'll talk about, that I think are very sensitively handled. But one thing that he did, which I remember hearing really only on a couple of other movies we've done on the pod, is he had time to rehearse. I think he had two weeks uh, to talk with each of the principal actors and have them contribute. Now, you know, we love actors on the pod, but at the same time, we're aware that there are certain guardrails, let's say, that you may want to put in place when dealing with anyone, if you are a director who's in charge of a project, if you give anyone free reign to do the things they think they should do with their character or with the screenplay or with the cinematography, that's not really doing your job. You have to be in service to your vision of the film. And it's certainly appropriate to have input. But I wonder if the input here either didn't make it to the screen because of studio cuts or maybe complicated or muddled some of the straightforward ways that we would learn about the characters. Because, you know, Chris Walken, such an amazing actor, can do so much with so little if he has to. But somehow here, he doesn't really come together as a fully fleshed out character. Natalie Wood doesn't really come together as a fully fleshed out character. I would say Louise Fletcher does, but that's because she's given conflict of a sort that Walken really isn't. You know, her conflict comes in in the co-opting of the idea that they create in the lab, her and Walken and the fellow scientists that are working on this incredible discovery that they make. And of course, Cliff Robertson, Cliff Robertson is representing the government's attempt to use this for nefarious means. And so you have an investment in her clearly clear-eyed scientific method and her awareness that this has to be fought against. And interestingly, Walken is put in the secondary position, which I think is cool about this movie. Like, he's deferential to her, and she's clearly the one in charge, both sort of spiritually within the lab and politically within the lab environment. And she snaps and talks down to Walken all the time and tells him to don't be stupid and uh, don't talk, like, and then he has a scene where he kind of tells her, stop talking down to me. Like, I'm so tired of you belittling me in front of these people. So on the one hand, it's kind of cool that Walken is put in this ensemble, which is really kind of what it feels like. Although th that's where the movie maybe mishmashes a bit because maybe we're swinging around a little bit too much and it's not enough of one person's story ultimately. Uh, but I think the person whose story it is the most is... Louise Fletcher playing Dr. Lillian Reynolds. It's her life and death and her afterlife that really forms really the, the through line of the film. And along the way, we have so many different other types of filmmaking that we'll talk about in a bit. Now, I mentioned one of the cool things is the portrayal of scientists. And I mentioned that because Trumbull... Um, noted this in an article. Now, one of the, one of the joys of this was I found a, a Cinefantastique magazine, which is a movie magazine. I don't know if it's still around, but in the 80s, you know, it had kind of a heyday. It's amazing to get an, art, to get an entire uh, edition of this magazine, which you can get online. They have them all posted online. You can, you can leaf through them like a real magazine digitally. And it's such a different time to look at a magazine from 83 and 84, which not only has cool, you know, books and movie stuff for sale, but like an entire magazine that comes out, I guess, bi-monthly. And in this issue, here, here are the articles. It's a special issue about the films of David Cronenberg, partly. So we covered The Dead Zone, which we did on the pod, and they talk about Videodrome, two really in-depth articles about the making of and the challenges and interviews with all the principal people involved in the film. And then there's four other main articles. One is a profile of Stephen King, who's, of course, at the time had like four movies coming out. Uh, 
there's a long profile of Philip Kaufman making the right stuff. Great film. There's a long profile of the making of Brainstorm. And there's an article about Space Ace. What is Space Ace? I don't know. It's from the folks who brought you Dragon's Lair. It's the latest sensation in the dynamic new field of interactive video games. Okay, there you go. And it has articles and reviews of Cujo, Koyana Scotsi, The Evil Dead, Nightmares, Dead Zone. I mean, it's cool. It just has such stuff. Anyway, in this article about The Dead Zone, one of the things Douglas Trumbull wanted to do was he talked to a lot of professionals in science, and he said, quote, they were all afraid we were going to screw up and make the scientist one of the stock, frizzy-haired, bespectable wrecks and weirdos who don't have any humanity. One of the things we wanted to show in the movie was that scientific, technical people are human beings with feelings and lives of their own, isolated though they may be. Now, this is like this esoteric point, but I think when you, when you watch the film— this is one of the things the film really accomplishes well through use of details like the recumbent bicycle that Chris Watkins' character rides, his home, which was a real house uh, in the research triangle area of, I believe, North Carolina, where it was filmed, which is sort of a, a really cool house that looks like it has solar panels and it's it's got an innovative design on the inside. And it shows these people as kind of the quirky, funny, sardonic um people that they are. It doesn't, doesn't rely on the shorthand for science scientists, which I think is great. And what were Drummle's hopes for the film? Well, in this piece, he says, I think the finished film will be a rare blend of really good performances in what might be a quality dramatic film, such as ordinary people combined with the special effects, high tech aura of a science fiction film, which is a really interesting thing to shoot for. Unfortunately, I don't think it really achieved either. You know, it's one of those things where if it had done one or the other really, really well, you'd probably give it a little bit more room. But it's a really worthwhile film to visit, and I'm not, I'm not dumping on it by any means. But it's fascinating to watch a film and sort of see one that doesn't really work and sort of try to figure out why. Um, I think like everything, it comes down to the script. Because, man, the subtlety of creating interaction and connection between characters and creating fully formed characters is a lot more subtle than I think we realize sometimes. I think in films, there is a lot of quick work done by very smart people, directors, writers, and actors, editors, to give you the shorthand information about a character without belaboring it and also without telegraphing it, but having it be natural, having it feel like you know who this person is through either some deft use of very specific things or dialogue that sort of serves the same purpose. Now, in this case, I'm not sure, again, where that all went wrong. Is it an inexperienced director? Is it a director who is too focused on the technical effects and maybe not so focused on the ordinary people side? Is it the five, six, seven, eight different writers who had their hands in the script at some point? Was it Trumbull's overall vision for the film, which was going to also have a difference in the way it was projected? This is also one of the great things about the time that we were at in 83, although not so great for Doug Trumbull, was that he had developed a his own format, you know, as these guys do, right? He had developed a 70 millimeter widescreen format, which he called ShowScan, I'll give you a brief bit of technical detail because I know some people that follow the pod are in the business and enjoy this kind of stuff. You guys probably understand it way better than I do, so I apologize for this completely, probably abbreviated description of it. But as I understand it, ShowScan was a process where films were photographed and projected at 60 frames a second. The standard frame rate was 24 frames per second. So the increased frame rate coupled with uh, a much wider, brighter image than used in most movies, and to go with it, its own sound system that he created, his idea was creating this really amazing sense of, of visceral reality for the viewer. 
Now, in this article, it says that a typical large theater screen of the day, I don't know what the typical size is today, but of the day, they were maybe 19 feet by 35 feet. So say 19 feet tall by 35 feet wide. The show scan screen was going to measure 49 feet by 108 feet. So it's probably more IMAX-like. And the whole thing that Trumbull was doing, whether he picked this up from someone like George Lucas, who's very famous for doing this exact same thing, is you develop a technology and then you direct a movie in order to learn about and showcase the technology. And this happened over and over and over again with ILM and with George Lucas. And that's what Trumbull was really trying to do with Brainstorm because the whole movie was developed and conceived, he says, for the show scan process. And essentially what he was asking was that after the studio funded and got on board with shooting in show scan, then the, the theater operators were going to have to change equipment and, and screens in order to show the film. So that was his dream. And it went so far that he eventually was trying to think about starting ShowScan as its own business, where he would make films and own and construct theaters to show films in the show scan process. And he wanted that to be its own thing outside of the regular process of making films. So what happened was as they, as they went on into the making of the film, well, as you can imagine, studio executives kind of are like, what's this whole show scan thing? Like frame rate, what? And basically uh, they abandoned the show scan process. And eventually, what ended up happening, and it's interesting if you watch the film, I'm not sure how true it is anymore. Again, I'm not technologically uh, proficient enough. I'm looking at my notes here because I, I, I looked it up to write it down for you so that I could at least describe it accurately. But basically what happens in the film is that there are moments where people are wearing the device that's developed uh, by Louise Fletcher and Christopher Walken which allows you to experience exactly what another person experienced. Plugs right into your cortex. You are there. You are seeing. It's beyond virtual reality. Um, it is that person's experience, and your, your, your body is physically undergoing the exact thing that their body was undergoing, which becomes a plot point in the movie, which many teenage boys will remember. We'll talk about that in a second. So what happened was... Uh, Sorry, there's like strange things going on in my office building, strange sounds. Again, not to be too technical, but a typical aspect ratio from the 50s when the movies were competing with TV, which has a different aspect ratio than if you're going to the movies, is that some films were made in the 1.66 aspect ratio. A film like Rear Window, for example. Uh, the first three Bond films, Hammer Studio Horror films, Shane, White Christmas. These are all shot in the 1.66 aspect ratio. So what happened, I think, in the abandonment of the show scan process here was that you have these wide angle lenses, what almost looks like kind of a fish angle lens, which is when we're in the brainstorm moments of recorded experiences. And then you have a smaller frame on the screen, which originally projected in the cinema probably had what they call pillars on the left and the right to box off the image. And this was meant to indicate when you were in quote unquote reality and then when you were in the brainstorm type sequences. Now, I'm not sure if the film has been processed and treated so that it's a little more seamless, like did they stretch the image in the regular portions to sort of more match the widescreen image of the brainstorm sequences? I don't really know. But it is noticeable that something kind of occurred. Um, and it's interesting for that. And it's admirable as an attempt. But I'm not sure that the film ever fully recovered from losing this essential part of what Doug Trumbull was trying to be about. The other thing that's really cool about watching the film, in addition to the 1983-ness of it all, is the location. It was shot on location in North Carolina. And... Here's what he said about that. He said, well, we were originally thinking of shooting in Boston, but what I really wanted 
was a location in the country with lots of trees, but still where there was a lot of high-powered research going on. I was told that Research Triangle Park in North Carolina was where it's at. And man, it's amazing. I, the, the first thing I immediately thought of seeing some of the incredible architecture here was Severance, which similarly uses some of these 60s or 70s buildings built for large technology companies in places like upstate New York, in the case of Severance, or here in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, where much of the locations were centered around the borough's Wellcome Company research facility and executive headquarters. And it's an incredible building. It looks like like you could not make a location like this without digital effects today. It's this, uh, I'll read you the description. It's a futuristic assemblage of hexagons built somewhat like an A-frame vertically, but roughly in the shape of an S when seen from above. All the walls slope at 22 and a half degrees. Even the flagpole in front of the building leans at 22 and a half degrees. It was designed by Paul Rudolph, and it serves as the setting for the research and development branch of a large American corporation. So it has just the right sense of kind of menace and uh, um, that there's something else going on, uh, which Cliff Robertson is really well used. I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I can't remember when it was, but somebody had unkind things to say about uh, Cliff Robertson in something and something that he was miscast in. I can't remember what it was, but here he's used really, really well. Uh, all of his oiliness, his clothes. I posted a thing on Instagram about his Porsche design sunglasses. Um, his, his wardrobe is excellent. His office is excellent. Uh, unfortunately, the wardrobe choices do not help poor Natalie Wood, who is befrocked in these frilly uh, dresses and just, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Douglas Trumbull was of an era where Natalie Wood, to him, was this iconic, untouchable filmic superstar. And it feels like, you know, she's handled a bit with kid gloves uh, in the film. And while she undeniably has presence, I think she also um, feels a little amateurish in places. I, I guess the more charitable way to say it would be uh, maybe out of practice because that's what was going on in her life at the time. Um, <laughs> she's saddled with this industrial designer role within the company that all of the main characters work at. And she and Christopher Walken are married in the film, but they are separated and they're, they're having a contentious, acrimonious split. They're selling their house. Their kid is fucked up because of the divorce. I guess... Chris Walken's character is supposed to have been so obsessed with his work that he ignored his family, although that doesn't really play out. We're sort of arriving at the film after that's all happened, which is maybe one of the uh, flaws here in the construct, although we do see it in flashbacks, or we see it through her memory, I should say. But she's, <laughs> I don't think she was originally supposed to be in the movie, um, or maybe not, no one of her stature, let's say, was, was going to be in this role. So I think once it was her, um, they had to give her something more to do. So they made her kind of an industrial designer, quote unquote. And it's just a bit silly, the scenes where she's sort of tinkering with the headset and shrinking it down. It feels a bit forced. She doesn't really embody that type of character per se. And although she does evoke an emotionalism in her scenes uh, with Walken and that she does have an undeniable screen presence, I'm not sure if it's just too hard to separate what we know happened during the making of this film, which we'll talk about. And she's only 43, but she looks a bit older. I think some of the stories about what happened to her involve maybe there was some drinking going on. She does have a bit of that look. Certain actors who've been very forthcoming about struggles with alcohol, you can see it on their face in certain movies. Think of Melanie Griffith. Um, in Working Girl, you know, she's been very forthcoming about saying, yeah, I was pretty loaded during the making of that film. And it shows on her on her her face, which is very puffy and kind of uh, not slept in, let's say. There's a little bit of that I kind of felt with Natalie Wood. 
Um, but maybe I'm projecting on there, but I feel like you can look at her in this and think, wow, 43 is pretty young, but she looks a bit older. So that central relationship between the two of them never really gels, doesn't really come together in a way where you care much, except in this great scene where um, they've had an unsuccessful moment where uh, Chris Walken put the headset on her in the lab and recorded her, and then he put it on, and then he was experiencing her vision of him, and he gets mad because she was mad, and they have a fight, and he realizes, I guess, in this scene that she sees him as this person that he doesn't feel that he really is, but he also is caused to wake up to who he really is, and then he wants to show her who who he is in relation to her really at the core. And so there's this great scene where he goes back to their house, which they've been packing up and moving out of. Great use of James Horner's score here, by the way. And he plays her. I made that for you. A tape. It's a gift. What is it? It's me. It says confidential. Then we're into this beautiful memory sequence. This music's incredible. It's intercut between her experiencing the tape. You may kiss the bride. And these widescreen images of happy times. A lot of this takes place at Kill Devil Hill and the first flight of it's the, wind. the Wright Brothers. The wind. It's constant here. He took off from the bottom of that hill. And the first flight was less than the wingspan of a modern jet. And I want to tell you something. He was scared to death. I'm crazy about you. It's a secret. That's the girl I'm going to marry. This use of golden hour shots, great use of Chris Walken, great use of Natalie Wood. Great, They feel like real people in this one sequence. And I guess it speaks to the ability to kind of cut together a great sequence like this when you have such amazing music to use and these evocative images. Um, it contains a lot more information than we've gotten in your, you know, more than halfway through the film. But it leads to this uh, rapprochement between the two of them. Should I say rapprochement? Which is a bit pat, right? It's like, here we are. We've had this thorny, knotty, contentious separation leading to divorce. But here I just play you a two-minute tape. And now we're back together. And then it actually goes into this sort of reunion montage, uh, (laughs) which is... Which, which then tips into silliness, like he's wearing a fake nose and they're making popcorn and it pops. I don't know. It just, it's one of those things where it's like that first part of it contains an emotionalism that's so well done, so well put on screen, but a little too fleeting as we, uh, as we get there. So, but another great scene is when I said, I mentioned, you know, Louise Fletcher's death scene is incredible. And one of the things that she does as she's dying of this heart attack is she puts on the headset and she records her death, knowing that this is something, a use of this this invention that will have merit. And she's doing it for Chris Walken, clearly. But I kept feeling like they were... I felt like they could have gone a little farther into the fact that maybe she secretly was in love with him the whole time, I can't decide whether it's cool that they didn't do that or whether that would have been more moving because after her death, he plays the tape and we see a lot of 
the events of the film through Louise Fletcher's eyes, but we also see things that we hadn't seen in the film through her eyes. You know, I work all the time, but that's the way it's always been. So in this scene, she's on top of this incredible church uh, with a character we've never seen before, and there's no context given. And then you have to read sort of the making of to realize that this was a character who was like, I believe a chaplain uh, who, or no, he was, he's a chaplain in real life, but he was playing someone that she had been involved with. And they were having this conversation the way, same way that Chris Walken and Natalie Wood were having a conversation about their relationship and what went wrong, but they cut out a lot of that stuff. And so it's just left as this kind of non sequitur conversation, which works because it's so beautifully shot. And Louise Fletcher is again, getting to do really important background stuff here. Do you not wonder sometimes if there isn't something more than that? More, more than work? <laughs> not to me. Lillian, I have never broken my word to you, but I'm sorry it is dead. You don't keep your promises. I have never broken my word to you, Lillian. Oh. I've never broken my word. I You're keep so my word. so close. Well, I guess I want to believe there is more. Mike, Mike. Triad is dead. I never could. It is dead. You know, all this kind of technological stuff of what he's experiencing and how it's being played on the the tape machine, like all that stuff Trumbull is so good at. The technology, the 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 labs and the equipment, the way that he uh, intuits to us how this device works, what it's recording on, which is this 3M film that was decorative, but it looks like this this large format magnetic tape. And it looks better on camera, apparently, than it did in real life. In real life, it was very garish and had like multiple colors and stuff. But the way that he shoots that, the way that the the device is set up, it works, but it also becomes kind of confusing because at first you're sort of used to thinking, oh, they're they're recording with a camera, right? So when they're wearing it, it's recording what you see, but then you have to kind of learn that, no, no, it's recording like inside your brain. But there's some continuity stuff, like for example, in the scene where Christopher Walken puts the headset on Natalie Wood and they have the fight, once he puts the headset on, uh, the, the, the tape, quote unquote, starts from before he put the headset on her. So this is a dumb thing to get hung up on, I know. But it's one of the little continuity moments, and there's many of them like that, where you're sort of like, well, wait a minute. Like, this thing records your thoughts and experiences and sensory information in real time as you hit record and wear this headset. Why is the recording starting when she walked into the room before she puts the headset on. Now, I guess you could say she's thinking about when she walked into the room and what he said to her. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe it's just a little too difficult to to navigate this type of stuff. But for me, when you watch it, it gets a little, uh, gets a little tic-tac-y to me. I, I lose some of my ability to follow what's going on because it feels a little uh, convoluted sometimes and like it's missing some of the uh, some of the information that it's trying to impart scientifically. Now, of course, part of the prescient nature of the film, and I think what I said before jokingly that most teenage boys remember is there is a uh, vagabond member of the scientific team here who uh, he's the guy who plugs Chris Walken into the mind of a chimpanzee and he has all these crazy experiences while wearing the device. And of course, he eventually has sex with a comely lab worker and records it. And the tape is being handed around the lab. And he brings it to poor Hal, who makes a splice, which I think is pretty funny. This is another one of the continuity moments. So this tape that's recording all of this data, right? Somehow you can splice it like film and you can make a loop. Uh, which is what they think, I guess, Hal is meant to be doing. He, he, he basically overdoses on the pornography reel that the other scientist made. And Chris Walken and Natalie would have to run over to his house where his wife has found him in the basement, sort of like spasmodically twitching in 
in in what we're led to believe is a uh, all encompassing never ending orgasm, which then gets into the sort of this weird part of the film where you're where he's changed for the better through this experience, and it feels very weird. You're kind of like, uh, why is he now? plugged into the secret of the universe when he was basically watching a live action porn tape. Well, it turns out that's one of the issues of the screenplay here. And this is one of the issues where one of the writers had a more involved sequence. Uh, He says, quote, Hal overdosed on several tapes. He didn't just play the sex tape in my draft. What that meant was that he had grown and evolved as a person. He suddenly had the insight to see that the human being he once was was based on limitations he had imposed on himself. So while his first impulse was to satisfy an adolescent need, what he came away with was far more profound. What is evolution after all, but the coming to higher levels of consciousness and learning how to deal with them. But of course, now only the only thing that remains from that idea, which is a really interesting idea, is that the guy basically made a loop of a porn tape and orgasmed himself to near death, but then emerges as this deep, wise person who quits his job and finds meaning and purpose in his life and playing golf and being with his wife. And it's one of the kind of Frankenstein script moments that I think is unfortunate. There were other examples of this. There's a scene where uh, Natalie Wood's character is teaching Walken how to play the piano through a tape. And all that remains now is just a few scenes of him experiencing what it feels like to play the piano. And Trumbull says, you know, a lot of these things got really shortened and it just took too much time to kind of set these things up. But it, it left an unfortunate imprint on the film. And as we get to the, I guess the... Let's say there's four parts. feels to me like there's kind of four parts to the film. In a weird way, the film kind of starts. It sort of works, but not really. And then you get to the central conflict of the film, which sort of works, but still not really. Then, like, weirdly, the third part of the movie sort of all of a sudden works really well. And I think if you watch it, check the, watch for this. Like, there's a section that works really well. And then at the end, it sort of becomes totally something else again where... The government is, of course, manufacturing these headsets for for nefarious military uses. And Walken and uh, Natalie Wood and Hal work together to reprogram the locked computer lab where these things are being manufactured so that they're destroyed by the very machines that are manufacturing them. And reader, I have to tell you, soap suds fill up the lab. It becomes this like totally slapsticky, stupid scene that's just really not fitting like the weighty nature of what we are supposed to um what we're supposed to be feeling so it's just it's unfortunate that however that happened uh it happened and that's how i think an otherwise kind of really intriguing premise for a movie just didn't really come together now the other thing that of course happened while the film was shooting in 1981, uh, it was shooting in and around North Carolina and then had gone back to California to do some interior scenes and they had a production break. Now, during this break in November 1981, the film is not yet completed. There are additional scenes left to be shot with Natalie Wood and I'll, I'll synopsize as best I can here, but what happened was there was a boat trip to Catalina Island aboard her husband, Robert Wagner's yacht, Splendor. And the entire crew of the yacht was the captain, a guy named Dennis Davern, Chris Walken, Natalie Wood, and Bob Wagner. And it was just a weekend trip. This is not like, you know, you are not thousands of miles out to sea. You're, you know, essentially off the coast of Los Angeles and you're, you're heading to Catalina Island. But whatever happened was that at 8 a.m. on the 29th of November, 
her body was found. She went missing the night before. And many of the circumstances, according to Wikipedia, are unknown. They don't know how she got into the water. Uh, but what happened was they recovered her body the next morning at 8 a.m., a mile away from the boat, with a dinghy that she took or beached nearby her. And to this day, it doesn't sound like anyone really knows what happened on the boat. There have been investigations. Um, I'll read to you from the Wikipedia thing here. Wagner said that she was not with him when he went to bed. The autopsy report revealed that she had bruises on her body and arms, as well as an abrasion on her left cheek, but no indication as to how or why the injuries occurred. The captain had previously stated that Wood and Wagner argued that evening, which Wagner denied at the time. But in his memoir, Pieces of My Heart, Wagner admitted that he had an argument with Wood before she disappeared. Autopsy found that her blood alcohol content was 0.14%, and there were traces of motion sickness pill and a painkiller. Her death was ruled accidental drowning and hypothermia. And according to the coroner at the time, he believed Wood had been drinking and she may have slipped while trying to reboard the dinghy. But she had a sister, Lana Wood, who expressed doubts. She alleged that Natalie Wood could not swim and been terrified of water her whole life. There's been a bunch made because there's kind of a comment. I don't know. It was made offhandedly in some interview where someone asked Natalie Wood, you know, what her greatest fear was. And she said something like deep, dark water. And so that's always been stated as sort of proof somehow that something nefarious happened on the boat. And, but um, there were also witnesses on a nearby boat who stated they had heard a woman scream for help during the night. Natalie Wood was buried and the case was reopened in 2011 after the captain publicly stated he had lied to police during the initial investigation and that Wood and Wagner had an argument. He alleged that Wood had been flirting with Walken, that Wagner was jealous and enraged and that Wagner had prevented the captain from turning on the searchlights, searchlights and notifying authorities after her disappearance. He alleged that Wagner was responsible for her death. Walken hired a lawyer, cooperated with the investigation, and was not considered a suspect. In 2012, they changed the cause of her death to drowning and other undetermined factors. And then in 2018, Wagner was named a person of interest by the police in the investigation, which, is, which was still open. Uh, they stated that they know, as of 2018, that Wagner was the last person to be with Wood before she disappeared. And in a 2018 report, the Times cited a coroner's report from 2013 saying that Wood had unexplained fresh bruising on her right forearm, left wrist, right knee, scratch on her neck, superficial scrape on her forehead. Officials said it's possible she was assaulted before she was drowned. So I guess only these four people maybe know what really happened. So it's impossible to speculate, but this was a big, big deal, okay? This, I mean, Natalie Wood was Hollywood royalty and her funeral was attended by Elizabeth Taylor, Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Olivier, Fred Astaire, Gregory Peck, on and on and on. Uh, it was a big, 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 big deal. Now to the film, this also was a monkey wrench because you have insurance on films. And a lot of times we've covered this in the pod before, you know, sometimes a studio maybe gets cold feet or starts thinking better about whether this film can ever successfully find an audience given the events, which clouded right now we're living through the uh, Helena Hutchins shooting by Alec Baldwin on the set of that fairly low budget Western, which now is resuming shooting bizarrely to most everyone with her her widowed husband as an executive producer and i guess resuming shooting with alec baldwin i don't know how you do that i don't know who wants to see that movie i heard someone on um on the, the uh kcw krcw uh podcast the business say the people that would watch this because of the controversy is probably a bigger audience than the people that would have watched that movie had it just been filmed to its completion and released. So cynically, I guess there's an audience there and maybe, you know, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes in these types of settlements, but sometimes 
studios have insurance policies. And if you have a force majeure, like the death of an intrinsic star who still has films left to scene, which are critical to the screenplay, well, they could simply file an insurance uh, claim and uh, and get all their money back <laughs> without risking it. So what happened in the aftermath was, this is from Trumbull's perspective, he believes that the financially strapped MGM simply got cold feet about providing the remainder of the funds to complete the movie. So she died, and they were locked out of their sets. They couldn't get in or out. Uh, everything just stopped. But at the same time, MGM was having a lot of financial problems. And he says, quote, MGM's problem was that insurance from Lloyd's of London took depositions from me and from other people. And Lloyd's realized that the film could be finished. Well, so why should they pay an insurance claim for something that really wasn't damaged goods? So uh, Lloyd's did provide two and a half million dollars of funding to complete the principal photography. And again, he used Lana Wood, Natalie's younger sister, to film a few remaining scenes standing in for Natalie Wood. And the film is dedicated to Natalie Wood. Um, but that was a, that was a, that was a hangover hanging on the movie. And it, uh, I'm not sure that the films ever really recover from that, even though now I don't think people think about that at all. When they watch this, they might think, oh, Natalie Wood. Yeah. Wasn't she a big star back then? So yes, there was some curveballs thrown to the film and some things had to be done, but I think the majority of what was, what was important to the relationship stuff of the movie had already been done. So the movie came out, it was not a success, although most people credited Louise Fletcher as the best thing in the film. Ebert gave it two stars out of four. Um, it wasn't a success. It only made 10 million bucks on a budget of 18 in 1983. And poor Douglas Trumbull, um, after going through all of the, the joy that he's going to get to make his show scan debut to the disappointment of, we're not going to do it in show scan, but you can make the movie, to, okay, we're making the movie, to my star just died in a mysterious, quote-unquote, accidental death that's casting a pall over the rest of my film, to the studio making changes and basically wanting to abandon the, the finishing of the film for financial reasons, he said, quote, I have no interest in doing another Hollywood feature film. Absolutely none. The movie business is so totally screwed up that I just don't have the energy to invest three or four years in a feature film. Movie making is like waging war. It destroys your personal life too. The people who can survive the process of making films have largely given up their personal lives in order to do that just because it's such a battle to make a movie. And in doing that, they've isolated themselves from the very audience that they're trying to reach. Wow. That's kind of quietly a blockbuster quote there that pretty much sums it up, I would say. So he didn't direct a film again, um, which is too bad. I think that Trumbull had a lot of qualities as a director that could have perhaps matured um, had he done a couple more films like this, but it doesn't really come together here and it's still a worthwhile film. I think you should still check it out, especially if you enjoyed our uh, Dead Zone episode. Um, it's still got something. It's got a certain je ne sais quoi that's hard to describe. It's, I wouldn't say it's a beautiful mess because it's not really a mess. It's just kind of aimless, I guess, but it still has a lot of pleasures as a 1983 revisit. And I enjoyed watching it a couple of times for this. Um, speculating about Natalie Wood's death is something that's still going to continue. And there are so few enduring mysteries in Hollywood that uh, while I'm sure a sense of closure would be helpful to uh, her friends and family, there's also something sort of poetic and I don't want to say just because anyone passing away in a terrible circumstance is never just, especially someone who's a mother and has children and all this kind of stuff. It's just a horrible situation, but I don't know. We know so much about everything that I find it somehow sickly refreshing to not know everything that happened in some tragedy. Um, maybe some things are best left unexplored. I don't know, but that's a part of the subtext of watching the film.
Anyway, check it out. And if you enjoy it, do let me know. Again, if you're new to the podcast, check out episode 125. It's just for you. It gives you a little bit of the history of the podcast. It points you in various directions to types of episodes that you might or might not be interested in. And as ever, if you really like the pod, I'm never going to make you listen to ads or ask you for money to become a Patreon to get some stupid YouTube video of me talking just to you once every other week. We're not going to do that here. But you know what would be helpful? Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined. Uh, That helps tremendously. And recommend the pod to a friend. Send them a link to an episode that you enjoyed that you think they might enjoy. And until next time, I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thanks again for listening to the Full Cast and Crew podcast.